So what we're doing today, we are in the midst of our sermon series on 1 Peter. This fall, what we are doing is we are looking at this letter of 1 Peter and just walking through it. And it's a short letter. It's full of theology. It's uh, full of challenging texts and gospel truth. And Peter wrote this letter to encourage Christians who were new Christians. They, were, they are recent converts to the Christian faith. And they were forcibly relocated from their homes by the Roman government, and they were resettled in rural Turkey. And so far, we have seen Peter lay out for us this incredible picture of gospel truth. Not just gospel truth, we have this incredible picture of our identity, of who we are in Jesus Christ. So Peter's argument, just to kind of like recap, he says that you are chosen for this. You are chosen for exile. That you have been washed and perfected by the the Holy Spirit. You have been rescued and ransomed by the, the Son upon the cross. You are citizens of God's kingdom. You have been born again. See, this is Peter's argument. And it has incredible ramifications for us. And so last week, for the past few weeks, we were pointing out how the church, how God's people are meant to live different lives. And so beginning today, we're even beginning to see that God's people have a public witness. A public witness. Today, we're going to be looking at how... Our witness relates to the government. And so the idea of today is that we have an exilic politics to think through. That's today. Next week is work, and then then the next two weeks after that, we're going to tackle singleness and marriage. And so this, this is really where Peter is taking us. And so I recognize that a number uh, of you are here today at Ironworks for the first time. And I just want to point out that it's our custom at Ironworks to take a book of the Bible and just work through it. And so in God's timing, it's providential, uh, or as some people say, coincidental, that we are thinking about politics when just a month from now is going to be election day. And so in, in, in God's wonderful providential timing, this is something that we are considering because uh, it's an important and very felt need that we have within our, our society right now. And so let's just dive into our text this morning. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in worship guides or on the walls behind me. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word and be with us now as we consider the the teaching of your word. May your spirit be at work in our hearts that we would uh, 
be shaped by your word, by your love, and by your spirit this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Recently I, follow, I, recently, I saw the following tweet on Twitter. And it's a quote. Here's the problem. There is no natural political home for us Orthodox Christians. There is not a major political party that actually represents us. Neither the GOP or the DNC even really want us to help shape their agendas or their platforms. They just want our votes to help get them into power. A few years ago, 14 student organizations were kicked off Vanderbilt University's campus. Author and Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren led the InterVarsity chapter that was on that campus. And they were expelled, not because of anything they did. They were actually expelled because of what a Christian fraternity on that campus did. And Vanderbilt was, uh, excuse me, this InterVarsity chapter was also expelled because they required student leaders to profess faith in the authority of Scripture and also the resurrection. Other organizations were kicked off for having a morality clause. Vanderbilt expelled InterVarsity for discrimination. Their administration said these follow, following words, and this is another quote, creedal discrimination is still discrimination. And what both of these, what both this tweet and this example at Vanderbilt University in Nashville show us is that culturally and politically, Orthodox Christianity is homeless. We feel pushed aside. We feel marginalized. In fact, this is where Peter's letter is highly relevant for us. He is writing to Christians who are being marginalized in their society. And the idea, the, the challenging word of today is that this is a good thing. This is why Peter's relevant to this is why Peter's letter is relevant to us, because Christians are meant to be politically homeless, and Christians are meant to be culturally homeless. That's the idea I want us to dive into today. And when this is where we're starting off with, uh, this is the foot that we're starting on as we're looking at the, the entire larger subject of public witness. And this is the first time that I've preached on a text that explicitly talks about the government or the emperor, about politics and government. And so I know that this is a sermon that's going to raise further questions for you. And if you have one particular question or would like to learn more, please ask. I would love to uh, see this sermon actually begin a conversation because God's word is never meant to end a conversation. God's word is truly always inviting you into further conversation and life with him. And so again, the big idea that, I'm look that we're looking at today is that Christians are meant to be politically homeless. Let's see how this is the case in our text today. Verse 11. This, and this is where Peter highlights the, this for us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And so Peter, once again, is returning to a metaphor that he opened up for us in ch chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. And so here is Peter returning to this metaphor. He is talking to these Christians who are physically and literally sojourners. They, are, they have been forcibly relocated from their homes, but he's taking their physical circumstance and 
showing us that it is a metaphor, a, a lens for which that we should look at our Christian life. And so why? Why are Christians sojourners, exiles, and politically homeless? And so this, like, as we lean into this, I want to point out what's something that Paul says in Romans 10.9. Paul tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And see, right here in Paul's words, in, in, the, in the letter of Romans, the central idea of Christianity is Jesus' lordship. Jesus is God's anointed king who is the anointed king to rule over the whole world. He has defeated the powers that oppose God. He has defeated the powers that oppose humanity. He is the one who has the final word, always. And when he announced his ministry in the book of Mark, which we looked at this past summer, in the book of Mark, Jesus says, the reign of God is near, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in, in the good news. And so Peter's argument, returning to the letter that we're looking at, Peter's argument, all that he has been building for us is that we are born again. We have been born as citizens of God's kingdom. As citizens of another kingdom, we are subjects to King Jesus. That means as we are subjects to King Jesus, we are exiles and sojourners in this world. Jesus even said as much when he was tried by Pontius Pilate. This is going to John 18. Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have been fighting to prevent, prevent me from being handed over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so right now, I just want to point out that as Jesus is our king, his kingdom is not of this world. And so as his followers, we are not of this world. Again, that's something Jesus told us. He tells us to expect that in John 17 in his high priestly prayer as Jesus is praying to the Father. My disciples are not of this world. And so as we are his followers, as we are Jesus' church, theologians have actually looked at the church and said that the church is a colony of heaven. That the church is a colony of God's kingdom in this world. And so that means we are meant to be a place we are meant to be a space or a family where people can begin to understand and feel and experience what life is under God's rule. What a community might look like that really lived in Jesus' kingdom. And it all begins in the fact that Jesus is Lord. And Peter even points, is pointing this out to us in verse 17 when he tells us to fear God. To fear God. But he also goes on to say, honor the emperor. And, and this is a surprising to us, because surprisingly, Peter tells us that we demonstrate God's kingdom by first subjecting ourselves. This is what Peter says in verse 13. By first subjecting ourselves to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. See, Peter's not telling us to withdraw ourselves from society. He's not telling us to, to, to really separate to, to just and to leave society alone. Instead, Peter's doing the exact opposite. He's telling us to engage in society. 
He's telling us to be participants in society, to be reasonable subjects within our, our country's respective government. And so this should feel very similar to us as when Jeremiah, the prophet, would write to the Israelite exiles who were in exile in Babylon, and, and Jeremiah says, tells them to seek the peace or seek the well-being of the city. And so as we are here as uh, politically homeless and culturally homeless, pe- homeless people, the, as we look at the government, it is important for us to recognize that the government is a good thing. Inherently, it has a good purpose. And Peter points this out to us. It's the government's purpose to punish evil and to praise those who do good. As we look at the Gospels, we see Jesus paying his taxes. We see Jesus even telling his disciples to pay their taxes. And throughout the Bible, the, from the, throughout the entire biblical story, we see various people honored for their civic service. Deborah in Judges, Joseph in Genesis, Daniel, Nehemiah, and others. And each of these people had power and used their power to help protect the weak and the vulnerable and the needy while also punishing evil. Even when they were, like Daniel, being marginalized for their their faith. And see, but what I'm pointing out there is that there is a proper and a good use to government. But as we think about a government, sadly, that's not always the case, and we know that far more than not, that politics and government have been twisted into something that does not punish evil, that does not praise the good. Instead, it could actually punish those who do good and, and praise those who do evil. That's where government has been twisted and corrupted. And we do not have to look far to find evidence of sin's effect on government. Justice is neither blind nor impartial. Instead, it shows favoritism and partiality. Politics do not, political parties do not share God's heart or values. And politicians, some more than others, are corrupt or narcissists or antagonistic to Christians. So perhaps you're here today, and as I've just recounted that, you're thinking of our former president, president or our current president. And I want to point something out to you about Peter's audience. Peter's audience would have either thought of Emperor Nero or Emperor Claudius. Emperor Nero went on to blame Christians for the fire that was ablaze in Rome. Claudius was the emperor who forcibly relocated these people into rural Turkey. And he is telling them, people who, he's telling these Christians who have directly experienced the antagonism very personally face the antagonism from the emperor, they're being told to submit themselves to the emperor supreme, and then lastly, in verse 17, to honor uh, the, the emperor. Jesus even said, uh, said this to, to Pontius Pilate, that, and again, this is John 18, he says that, that Pilate would not have the authority unless it was given to, to him. And so here's the tension that we, we find ourselves in. We are called, we are made, we are meant to be politically homeless people, yet we are also meant to be honoring to the emperor. We're meant to be engaged in, in society. And so where, where does this leave us? Does this mean that we should be uh, 
just be uncritically submissive or to just be blind in our obedience to the state? Not at all. Not at all. Again, this uh, looking at verse 17, uh, Peter says, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I, I've pointed this clause out twice now. This is now the third time. And Peter's language here is very intentional. We are to respect everyone, but the church, God's people, the brotherhood, has a special place in our hearts. Not just honor, but to love everyone. And when it ends, we are to honor the emperor or the president, but God is the one whom we are to fear and to worship. And I also just want to point this out. All of a sudden, Peter is, is bringing down, he's being a full egalitarian here as it re- relates to our, the social fabric of society. The emperor is on the same page as everyone. Honor everyone. Honor the emperor. Only the church and God are described with, with a different verb there at all. But, and so the point that I want to draw out is that whenever disobedience to, excuse me, whenever obedience to the state clashes with obedience to God, then it is our duty to actually disobey the government. That's John Stott. But we need to do so in a way that's both winsome and loving to our neighbors. Because all throughout this text, and we're going to see this for like the next two chapters, But all throughout this text, Peter is concerned with how non-Christians are going to perceive our public witness as Christians. We are belittled and mocked in similar ways to these early uh, Christians. And this is uh, something that I pointed out a few weeks ago when we first uh, started getting into this. But the church, here's the church where men are sitting in the same pew as women, where a business owner or slave owner would be sitting in the same pew as their employees. The the church was a challenge to the entire social fabric of Rome. They were called uh, atheists. They were called superstitious. They were called many things, and they were belittled and mocked. But yet, Peter tells us, be subject to the ruling authorities. But then look at this. But make sure at the same time that by your good behavior, you shame those out of folly and ignorance who want to criticize you. This, this is very similar to something that he, Peter is saying as well in verse 12. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good, de- good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter is showing us that he cares about our witness. He cares about our reputation, about how non-Christians look at us as Christians. So Ira Glass, who's, he's the producer of This American Life. Any fans of This American Life? He's a, so, he's a, uh, so he is the producer for this podcast. It's on NPR. It's a fantastic podcast. This is what he said in an interview. He says that Christians are horribly picked on and portrayed in the media as these crazy people, doctrinaire hotheads, but the, the, but the people, the Christians in my life, are some of the most thoughtful, wonderful people, and they have complicated beliefs, They're, but they are also open to different kinds of people, and this includes fundamentalist Christians. And so... 
in our world right now, Christians, Orthodox, Orthodox Christians are looked at and looked down upon. Where it's called backwards for our belief. Like, uh, for example, Bill Mayer um, on this HBO special called uh, Religious. It's like ridiculous and religion all put together. It's pretty clever. And he's like, you read the Bible, and here's these Christians. If you take it seriously, they believe in a talking snake. Are you kidding me? Snakes don't talk. I'm like, that, that's, and that's the entire show. And, and, and so it's true. It's true. That's just one example. We're called backwards. We're called unscientific. We're called bigots. We're, we're called haters. The accusation of being backwards, of being a bigot, only sticks when we are not loving people. When, when our dinner tables and our friendships don't back that up. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, but we are only loving people who look exactly like us, when we're only welcoming people into our homes and to our dinner tables who look exactly like us, then of course people are going to look at the church and say, that's not how it's meant to be. You guys are being bigots. That's what would happen. The accusation only sticks when our lifestyles back it up. And Peter here is very deliberately concerned with our public witness here, of our reputation. But in the, the truly Christian way of winning a good reputation for the gospel is for the local church to begin thinking seriously about what practical good things can be done in our local community. Let me say that again. The truly Christian way of winning a good reputation for the gospel is for the local church to begin thinking seriously about what practical good things can be done in this, in this local community. And so Peter's call here to honor everyone is incredibly significant and has immense bearing on our public witness. Honoring everyone means acknowledging that every person is made in the image of God, regardless of their ethnicity or green card status or gender or sexual identity or whether or not they are in the womb or anything else. On the basis of being made in the image of, of God, Christians should be the very first people to say black lives matter and all lives matter. And in the face of racism, when you take sin seriously, we should be the first to say that systemic racism is real and to again say black lives matter for, the, again, the very same reason. Every person deserves honor and respect because they are made in the image of God. Rodney Stark is a renowned sociologist, and uh, he wrote this book. It's an incredible book. And in this book, he is explaining how the Christianity rapidly grew in the Roman Empire. And the book is called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. You know what the book's about. Christianity, in a sense, there, as, as he's writing, as he's doing his study, Christianity is, in a sense, is a illegal religion. It had no church buildings. It had no Bibles. It had no tracts, no professional leadership, no seminaries, no Christian colleges, no campus ministries, no youth groups, no worship bands, nor best-selling authors or podcast celebrity pastors. Stark points this out, and he argues that Christianity grew because of love, because of the way Christians cared for, the, for people, how they loved the brotherhood and honored non-Christians. And very, very specifically, he cites two examples 
and, and as, long, as well as many others, but two very specific ones I want to look at. But they were epidemics. There were diseases and plagues that impacted the, the Roman Empire. And this is what he, he wrote. The church could not clean up the streets because there were still dead bodies rotting in the sewer that ran down the middle of the road. But Christians cared for one another, leading to greater survival rates. When pagan priests fled for their lives, Christians risked their own health and cared for sick pagans. Romans would gladly cheer on the gladiatorial death games going on in the Colosseum, but Christianity, what Christianity gave away was nothing less than honor, dignity, and their very humanity as they sought to honor one another. That's what Stark's point is. Christianity grew and because of their love, and that was their public witness. And so when we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, then our witness is always going to be counter to the flesh and to the way of the world. The best thing that we can do for our neighbors, this is the quote in your worship guide today, is not to be Americans, but to be followers of Jesus. I actually butchered the quote. We can be... Here we go. We can be Americans best when we're, we're not Americans first. See, when you look at Jesus' disciples, you'll, you'll notice that some of them have nicknames. There's Peter. Peter's real name is Simon, but Jesus called him Peter. Like, oh, you're the rock. And then there's James and John, the sons of thunder. But only two of Jesus' Jesus's disciples have an adjective attached to their name. There's Matthew, the tax collector. The tax collectors were Roman collaborators. They were known to participate in the, the really, really in all the things that the Roman Empire did. They would, could extort you for money. That's how they drew their salary. But there's also Simon the Zealot who sought to overthrow the Roman rule by violent means. And so Jesus, and throughout the Gospels, we should look at the Gospels and we should see that Jesus is the one who unites us. We're not united by our citizenship, by the good old USA. We're not united by political parties. We're not united by who we voted for or by who we didn't vote for. We are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The Christian family is where we should feel at home. And if God's family does not feel like home to you, then you perhaps need to figure out if the way of the world is shaping your heart. And Peter, very directly, is urging you to abstain from the passions of the flesh in this text. So, friends, the grand picture of this thing, of this entire passage and, and the entire larger argument of 1 Peter is that we are called to set our eyes on God's kingdom. This is why Jesus tells us to even pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And throughout history, when Christians ha have done just that, then society is shaped by the gospel and scripture in incredible ways. With the abolition of slavery, with voting rights to both minorities and women, and so much more. When we put our eyes on God's kingdom, when we find our identity first and foremost as his citizens and his kingdom, then and, and only then will we see an incredible difference all around us. Jesus gave us one last promise that seek first the kingdom of God. That's meant to be our singular focus. 
But he also, as he gives us that command, he also gives us this promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. That's the promise that Jesus gives us. And so not, within this promise, there's this invitation to come to the, be a part of his kingdom, to come and be his friend. And so the question, friends, I want to end with you today is that will you love his, will you let Jesus' love, and will you let Jesus' friendship be the ultimate shaping force in your life? Because that is the first question we must consider as we are going to continue exploring our public witness in the weeks to come. Let's pray.